150,000 Israelis apply for gun permits. Plus, scholar David Kopel dissects oral arguments in the Supreme Court's latest Second Amendment case. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Katowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com and a CNN contributor. You can head over to TheReload.com if you want to check out our latest news stories and sign up for our free newsletter to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. You get one email a week for free, and it, it gives you everything you need to know for that week. Of course, if you want to go a bit deeper, you can buy a membership, get it, get access to all of our member-exclusive pieces and our additional newsletter that goes out on Sundays. Um, This week, we are discussing the Supreme Court. The court has now had oral arguments in the first Second Amendment case it has taken up since the landmark decision in Bruin last year. Uh, And we have with us a, again, scholar, again, rights scholar, one of the best out there who who we had on about a month ago because he filed a a brief in this case. Um, David Kopel, the research director of Independence Institute is with us today. How are you doing today, David? I'm I'm doing good, and thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. Appreciate you coming back on. You know, we talked about uh, the lead up to the case, um, and now we're we're going to talk a little bit about where things have come down after oral arguments. You know, obviously, they're not 100% predictive. What gets asked in oral arguments doesn't guarantee that a justice is going to go a certain way based on how they how they performed in in the in the questioning, but, uh, but you know, you can take away some things, right? I mean, uh, it's not a fruitless thing to look at these oral arguments. There's quite a lot in there That's that right. we can probably, probably peel yep. away. So let's, let's start with, uh, just, uh, your brief itself. Uh, you know, last time you were on, you, you described your advice to the court in the amicus brief, which dealt with, uh, how this federal law is, is structured. This is the, the law that bars people who are, uh, under domestic violence restraining orders from owning guns. And it has two sections, uh, two types of restraining orders that it can apply to. And you had uh, said that the second part had an issue. Can you just explain that argument real quick? And then it, this got brought up in oral arguments. Yes. How, how did you think that went? Sure. So uh, eighteen, volume 18 of United States Code, section 922, subsection G8C, Roman numeral 1, uh, bans gun possession with up to a 15-year prison sentence uh, for mere possession in the home by someone who's under a domestic violence restraining order when the judge who issued that order found that the person poses a credible threat to an intimate partner or child. Subsection C, Roman numeral two, also imposes that same kind of ban without any judicial finding at all, according to the statute, and is simply an order that that by its terms, orders a person not to do violent things against the uh, intimate partner or child. Right. And you, your brief had an issue with that second part, right? Exactly. We said that based on the, the Bruin methodology of, you look at the original meaning of the second amendment, as that's elucidated by history and tradition, that there there is a history and tradition uh, both before and after uh, 
the enactment of the Second Amendment, of restricting arms rights for individuals who have been found to be dangerous on an individualized basis. And so C1, with the finding of a credible threat, uh, is not an infringement of the Second Amendment um, in the sense that of, of targeting somebody like Rahimi to restrict his arms rights. Whereas C2, which doesn't require any finding of anything, we argued was a Second Amendment infringement. Uh, in the uh, Solicitor General reply brief on behalf of the U.S. government, um, our amicus brief, that was the only amicus brief on in, in opposition to the government side that the government replied to. And they said, no, that, that that's okay. Uh, the government can come up with legislatures can identify categories of people um, and they don't have to have a specific finding uh, about an ind individual. And that, as you said, that that did come up in, in oral argument uh, initially by Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch talked about it, and uh, Elizabeth Preloger, the U.S. Solicitor General who argued the case, obviously talked about it with them and then even brought it up again in her rebuttal phase of oral argument. Yeah, and it seemed it seemed like she kind of retreated from the brief uh, in that her argument was in in oral arguments was essentially that the judges uh, who issue these orders um, basically are finding that somebody is likely to commit violence uh, uh, even under that second paragraph that they wouldn't issue a, a permit or sorry a, a restraining order if they didn't have reason to believe that this. Uh, that the the subject might actually commit violence against it, their their it, exactly her she made a and this was not something that she the the U.S. government had argued in its briefing but she did as you say retreat to a more defensible position in oral argument which is that any court order under uh, necessarily includes a imp implicit finding that the person who is ordered don't do that, uh, that the judge must have found there's some likelihood that the person will do that. And that's why the order was issued. So even though the, the statute doesn't say you have to have any factual finding, she argues that, that there's an, an implicit factual finding uh, if you drill down deep enough behind the statute. Yeah. Uh, so she's kind of arguing that Basically, one and two are, are the same in practice, I guess, is kind it, of her. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Which And, and sh yeah, go, go ahead. Which is not really true, because as the, there were two uh, real solid amicus briefs um, from, from public defenders, I think one from the uh, Alameda County Public Defenders um, and some others, and another from the uh, National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, which based on their own experience, say, no, restraining orders are, are, are given out quite promiscuously uh, in many jurisdictions. And this idealized version presented by the uh, Solicitor General's office uh, is it, just not true, that it, it's, it's very common uh, for judges to issue them with, with no real factual inquiry at all, that it's just safer uh, for the judge professionally to issue restraining orders all around um, 
And then, because then if somebody does something bad, then it's the judge suffers a reputational problem that he didn't, he or she didn't issue a restraining order beforehand. Hmm. Even, uh, even if there's very little, little or no risk that the person to whom the issue is ordered is, is actually any danger to anyone. Right. And she, she rebutted that, I guess, with uh, this, she brought up a legal principle that to my understanding, and, and maybe you could give us a little uh, better understanding of this, but essentially that the court has to assume that lower court judges are operating properly, that they, unless they have evidence to the contrary, right? That, that they're supposed to take in good faith these judges issuing these restraining orders. That sort of was her rebuttal. Was that was my understanding? Yes, and, and that. you know that, that that's exactly right. Uh, the, the problem with her argument is the the amicus briefs we just talked about from the public defenders show that that's not the case. That there's plenty of evidence that judges are not always uh, being factually thorough um, or or having a a good solid basis for issuing these, these kinds of orders. Hmm. Okay. And so uh, I guess on, on your particular brief, which, you know, was, was pretty narrowly focused on this uh, dichotomy between these two uh, aspects of the law. Um, you, in fact, you said it could be fixed with a single word change, right? From right. or to end. Um, where did you feel the judges were, were coming down on that? Or the justices, do you, do you think they're, they're uh, inclined to knock out that second clause? I, I think there are. It, it's it's always perilous to uh, predict results based on oral arguments. I remember yeah. there was a, a administrative law uh, gun case that the, uh, the the court heard back in the the nineties, and one of my lawyer friends went to oral argument and said, "Oh, this was great. We're gonna we're gonna win this one nine zero, and and it did turn out to be a nine zero case, but the other way." Um, so it, it's, uh, I, I'd say what you can say for sure is the judges were, the justices were engaged in the issue and thinking about it seriously. Right. And yeah, so you, there's, I guess from some hope, uh, that the decision will say that it's C2, the thing with no requirement of an actual factual finding, uh, that they might say that's an infringement. Hmm. Yeah, from your perspective, I imagine it's better that they brought it up a number of times rather than they didn't talk about it at all. At, at, at least, at, exactly. It's the, at least they're paying yeah. attention to me, as the uh, you know the fifteen-year-old <laughs> girl uh, said. <laughs> there you go. Um, now, uh, you know, we mentioned that the government kind of retreated on this question a bit, and I think retreat might be the word of the day for these oral arguments on both sides, honestly. Um, but let's stick with the government for a moment here. Because I think the she she was really retreating the Solicitor General right from the get go. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk going into this oral argument about the two standards that might be presented. Um, you had the government's preferred standard, which is law abiding, responsible. Uh, if you're not law abiding or responsible, then you can have your guns taken away, essentially. And you had sort of the ACLU talking about it, uh, different standard, the dangerousness. You've had other. Amakai, I think you've, you, even you've uh, sort of, um, as we just went over, talked about a finding of actual dangerousness being required uh, for guns to be taken away. Now, there's obviously questions about how the, you know, what, lifetime prohibitions and things like that that weren't as much at issue here. Um, but 
you know, the, the government came in and was articulating this and then immediately was had several justices questioning uh, their their law abiding responsible standard. What did you make of that? And the question is, well, when you say and obviously, <coughs> excuse me, the, 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 the U.S. Supreme Court in its um, major Second Amendment decisions has certainly used the phrase law abiding responsible citizens many times. So mm -hmm. when some of the justices say, said, well, why are you raising that as the standard? I think uh, Solicitor General Preloger said, well, we got it from your cases. You know, so what are you going to expect? Um, right. We learned it from watching you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But she also, in, in the back and forth, and this was even true in, in the government's opening brief, that they read that she, even the government concedes that that means dangerous. You know, that if you're not law abiding in the, well, you know, in, in the sense that you, uh, as an example we talked about in our brief, is your, your habitual repeat overtime partner. You know, every day you, you, you pay the meter for two hours and you stay there all day for eight hours. And you've been convicted of that a hundred times. You're, you're clearly not law abiding in some sense, uh, but it, it's not really danger uh, that you're creating by, by doing that. So they, they seem to retreat on that, but then they take back the retreat by saying basically Congress can categorize anything it wants as supposedly a category of dangerous people. Hmm. Yeah, that seems like, like a pretty big Yeah, like loophole. somebody, for example, who uses marijuana but never uses marijuana when they have when they're carrying or shooting or doing anything with a firearm. You know, so what's what's the danger there? Um, none, obviously, which is why the Fifth Circuit in the uh, U.S. v. Daniels case this summer said the 922 G3 ban on gun possession by anyone who is an unlawful user of a controlled substance. The Fifth Circuit didn't throw that statute out. But they said, as applied to Mr. Daniels, who is a marijuana user with no indication of ever using while intoxicated, as applied to him, you, you can't enforce the, the federal gun ban. And of course, the, the Department of Justice disagrees with that, they, and they filed a cert petition in the Daniels case. So even though they, they claim they're only arguing for dangerousness, uh, they define dangerousness so broadly as to basically be anything Congress says it is. Yeah. They, and they also had this conception where she didn't, she didn't want to say that they only um, believe in dangerousness. It seemed like because she was uh, trying to preserve uh, these prohibitions on people who, whose gun ownership presents a danger, but who are not themselves, um, consciously attempting to be dangerous, if that makes sense. Uh, so she, her examples well, were, sure. were, uh, you know, people who are mentally ill or people or, or children was the other one. Yes. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and, and, and that, I think that seemed to want to go all the way a, to a just legitimate thing. You, you think of some people dangerous are people. Dangers. 
right. There, so there's some folks who are the reason they're dangerous is because of the things they intentionally do. They're they're robbing the liquor store yeah. with a handgun. Um, but somebody who's mentally ill uh, might not be convicted of a crime because they'd have an insanity defense they could raise. Mm-hmm. So you're not ascribing moral fault to that person, but it's still dangerous uh, for that person to, to have a firearm. Yeah, that seemed to be why that was her explanation for why she didn't. They didn't just say dangerousness, why they right. said law abiding or or responsible because yeah. of these other categories. That was her her reasoning for why the government went the way it did. But uh, but, yeah, as you're as you're saying here, uh, you know, it seems like they're they have an extremely broad definition of dangerousness. And that that goes to something I believe it was Justice Barrett. Actually, Justice Barrett had a pretty good. Uh, I thought rebuttal to the idea that the court came up with the law abiding responsible standard. Like, yes, they do talk about how in Heller or McDonald or, or Bruin that the people affected were law abiding and responsible. But she, she said, you know, they weren't necessarily trying to create a standard with that. They were just saying that they're kind of like setting a floor, like these people that are being affected in these cases previously None of them had any sort of criminal record or, or anything like that. And that was kind of uh, right. their way of talking about it. Didn't, uh, at least to, to Barrett, it didn't seem to set a test. Um, and and uh, she so she kind of yeah. objected to that. What did you think of that? Yeah, that, that that's true. But it, it's, a, it's a fair argument. But it's also true that, that in a Supreme Court opinion, every word yeah. gets parsed very carefully by the lower courts and there's rules in basically every federal circuit court of appeals that even something that is clearly dicta in a recent u.s supreme court opinion is almost as binding as the holding itself Mm. Uh, you know and and that that's less true as you go lower on the judicial food chain but certainly the supreme court you know it's it's you know, it's practically like, you know, reading the Bible in the sense that every little word uh, matters a lot and interp- gets taken very seriously in interpretation. So yeah. and, and th- that one of the benefits of this case is the Supreme Court can clear some of that, clear up some of that confusion. Yeah, yeah. I think that's always been my perspective on it, too. Like a lot of people, people like to talk about dicta. And how it doesn't apply, but I mean, it, it, I understand it's not binding, but it's almost binding, right? It's, so if the court doesn't like yeah. this idea that people are taking a law-abiding, responsible standard from what their their previous uh, cases, then yeah, it probably yeah. should say something about that, right? Right, that's right. And speaking of which, if you said, oh, if if, if you just dismiss dicta, then <clears throat> sorry, if you if you just if you said, well, anything the Supreme Court says that's not the holding. You know, we can just ignore that. Well, then you'd have Heller and it's like, okay, great. We can't ban a handgun in the home. And other than that, we don't know anything about it, about what the Second Amendment means. I mean, the the Supreme Court is the Supreme Court is writing to give guidance to all the lower. Yeah. Yeah. And in cases that are not just the same as the precise one the court decided. I think that's an important point that kind of gets looked over, even maybe even occasionally. uh, for for convenience sake, like oh, I like this dicta, I don't like that dicta. Uh, oh, that, so. that that's constant. And that that's what well, that's what lawyers do on all sides. You know, sure, you're representing your client. You don't like something, you call it dicta. 
And maybe you're right, but that doesn't mean that the the judge is necessarily going to say it. It has no bearing on what I have to do as a judge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and but so speaking of this, this uh, of Justice Barrett and the, uh, perhaps the idea of them clearing some of this up, maybe setting a new standard uh, to to judge who can and can't be disarmed. Uh, she did explicitly bring up uh, uh, one of the cases in the lower courts range, uh, which is another uh, that is actually a Third Circuit case out of Pennsylvania yes. that dealt with. Um, Somebody who's a felon because they essentially they committed food stamp fraud. They lied about a couple thousand dollars. They had a couple thousand yeah. dollar fine, and but it made them a, a felon. So they're prohibited from owning guns for the rest of their lives. And the Third Circuit, uh, not the Fifth Circuit, which is you know the one you hear a lot about because they're they tend to be on the cutting edge of uh, these these gun rights cases at this point. But the Third Circuit, which is a little more uh, moderate in some senses, uh, they. they did the same thing as in the marijuana case you mentioned. They they said as applied to Mr. Range, the, this prohibition is unconstitutional under the Second Amendment, and uh, this came up explicitly at oral arguments. Uh, what did you make of that exchange? The uh, the Range case was a guy who committed food stamp fraud of of over two thousand dollars in the early nineteen nineties. In, in Pennsylvania. And the crime for which he was convicted is actually a, a misdemeanor in Pennsylvania, but it's a misdemeanor for which he could have been sentenced to up to five years in prison, um, even though it's a misdemeanor. And that's included within the scope of 922 G1, which is commonly called the felony prohibitor, but it really, it also applies to a lot of misdemeanors as well. Right. Um, and, to, and to be clear with these cases and a lot of them, like range never actually served any time in jail. Um, so you no, know, it's just he, something I, it, I, the, the way the law works is kind of funny. And to, I think to the average yeah. person, some of these things like he could have, ser- it was a misdemeanor, but he could have served five years in jail. So it qualifies as a felony under this or the same thing as a felony equivalent to a felony. Law, yeah. Even if he never served any jail time at all, which he didn't right. uh, say, so, you know, you get these kind of wacky circumstances and, and I think range fits in there. It does, and so the the Third Circuit in on bond, meaning not just a three judge panel, but the all the active judges of, of the the circuit uh, sometimes get together on bond to hear very important cases, and they ruled that the G one can't constitutionally be applied to range to Mister Range because he's he he did this. Food stamp fraud. He was he and his wife were pretty poor, but they uh, in the application they misstated, understated their income to make them food stamp eligible, which was fraud. And so then they ended up paying a fine of over two thousand dollars for the for the fraud. And now we're a quarter of a century later, and he's lived a honorable life ever since. No no problems at all. And sues and says, well, I, you know, I'd like to have a, a gun, but I can't because I'm on the prohibited persons list. And the Third Circuit majority agreed and said, as applied to range, you can, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll grant an as applied exception uh, to Mr. Range so that, that he can have a gun, even though we're not finding 
G1, the, the felony and misdemeanor prohibitor uh, in itself to be unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. And, then, and this did come up, as you said, at the oral argument, and the Solicitor General Preloger took the view of, no, there should never be as applied exception, um, like as in range uh, on the food stamps, or like as in Daniels on the, the marijuana user uh, in, the, in the Fifth Circuit case, that no, once, once Congress sets the category of supposedly dangerous people, that's it. And courts should never find that anybody within that as an individual is an exception to that category of supposedly dangerous in general. Hmm. Yeah. And she, um, uh, she also kind of punted on the question a little bit too, right? So she said, you know, we'd like to have the opportunity to talk about it. people like Mr. Range. Uh, she, didn't, she didn't say Mr. Range, but people yeah. in those circumstances yeah. in a future case, right? That was sort of, she didn't right. get into why the why, you know, somebody who who cheats on food stamps should be disarmed for why they're dangerous, right? She didn't get into all. Of yeah, that. no, that that and they've uh, they filed a petition for certiorari, but also in in the range case, as in the, the Daniels marijuana case, and on both of them said, even though we filed a petition, don't act on it yet. Wait till you've decided Rahimi, and then. Then grant us a cert petition. Then grant the cert petition, and we can do those cases under whatever the Rahimi standards. Right, but they don't, right. they don't have to so do that, it that way. Then another approach would be to grant cert in Range and Daniels, and have briefing on those this term, and then they could issue, you know, uh, collective opinions on Range, Daniels, and and Rahimi, and give the courts, lower courts, lots of guidance uh, yeah. by deciding all three cases. That, uh, you know, Justice Gorsuch had, uh, Gorsuch, sorry, yeah. had a, a number of questions that kind of implied that maybe that's what he wants to do, uh, or at least he, he was laying out that this is an option. Yeah. He was saying we don't have to rule on all this stuff in this particular case, right? right? This is a facial challenge. If there's one scenario where this law could be constitutional, then we have to uphold it. It was the yeah, impression that I got from what he was saying. And then we can decide all these other questions in other cases because they're not really at play here. You know, procedural questions came up a number of times that aren't really the core of this case. Uh, and then, yeah, the, these other scenarios like uh, who's who constitutes as dangerous. I mean, it seemed like they all pretty much agreed that Rahimi is dangerous based on his uh, the facts in his <laughs> case. You know, his threats yeah. and his shooting, shooting at people and yeah. uh, all the all the stuff he's done or accused of doing, at least. And um uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it feels like at least there's some momentum for that on the court. I don't like you said, I don't want to get out way out of, ahead of things, but I, I got the feeling that was uh, something they were at least discussing as an option. I, I think there. There's a maybe a collective sense that, OK, we we did Bruin and Bruin sets up a. Correct originalist test for how to apply the Second Amendment. But then we need to give lower courts, and, and now, that, now that we did that, we have these, these cases coming up like Rahimi and Range and Garland and or, uh, uh, Daniels. And we need to, clearly the, the lower courts need some help from us in how to apply that 
as a practical matter. And I, I think the court is sympathetic to the idea that it it, uh, it kind of has a duty to the lower courts to give them some guidance about what to do next. Hmm. Okay. And, uh, you know, going back to this sort of uh, what felt like a consensus view, again, like you mentioned, we can't take too much away from from oral arguments, but it, it, there were there wasn't a lot of questioning of the idea that Rahimi himself is dangerous. Um, there, there seemed to be, uh, I mean, the, going back to Justice Barrett's question about range, she sort of established that maybe this case is in the I think she called it the heartland, so like the the core of the idea of somebody being dangerous. Um, but there's these other instances like range where it's less clear that the person is actually dangerous. Um, and so, you know, I mentioned retreat earlier. It seemed like the government retreated, but it also felt like Rahimi's counsel retreat, retreated a number of times as well. You know, they started off with, he had a couple of good lines um, about the history of this law that there, there really isn't a, uh, certainly not a historical twin, as got brought up, not that that's required by Bruin, but, uh, you know, he, he talked about how this law is, he's, the tie he was wearing is older than this law. And so, um, you know, he started on this point that, you know, this, this, there's not really a tradition of this exact kind of uh, punishment for this type of offense. Um, he, but from there, he kind of admitted a number of points that you can disarm dangerous people if uh and and you know maybe he tried to make the distinction a little bit lower like well if they're an imminent threat at the moment you can disarm them but if they just have a gun in their home you can't uh or you can't put them in jail for 15 years or 25 years just for having a gun in their home uh, how did you make what did you make of his arguments as the case went along well, I, I th it's like you're saying this. This happens all the time in oral argument. Is you write a brief which sets forth a, a, the strong view of, of how you you think the law should be interpreted, and you know his, his brief, which I thought was very well written, uh, said that if you look back to history and tradition and in, in the founding era, the colonial era, the, the early republic, for people who have political rights, you know, not not slaves or, or free people of color, but for people who have political rights, uh, all the the gun control laws involving some misconduct by somebody, they did restrict public carry, or they might confiscate a person's gun. But they never made it a crime, even for that person to have a gun in their own home. And he's and that that's an accurate description. Uh, but when you then you get into court, and the court doesn't seem sympathetic to your your top line uh, argument, you 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 try to come down from that and and make tactical retreats, just like uh, Solicitor General Freeloader did, and that that's. That's kind of what oral argument is for, is you you start off with your what you want the most, and then under pressure from the judges, you you see what you can you try to pull back to a more defensible position that'll still result in a in a win for your client. Hmm. Yeah, and it's maybe there just isn't 
a, a secondary position when you're in Rahimi's situation, right? It's kind of an all or nothing thing for him because uh, if you get beyond the idea that uh, you, well, right, because like he you said that top line argument. Yeah, and and the remember the uh, the public defender, like like any criminal law uh, attorney, uh, his duty is to his client. Period. Yeah. That's that's the key thing. That that's all he's supposed. To, you can think about the implications and things like that. But his his yeah. his duty is to zealously represent his client and do the best he can for that particular client. Um, and the the problem is, if you say, well, let's make this an as applied challenge. Well, as applied to Rahimi, he's clearly a dangerous yeah. guy right. because there's the the Texas state court order, which was based on an affidavit filed by his girlfriend with lots of details of essentially yeah. Yeah, he was he was beating me up by a, an automobile in public and then some guy comes along and and you know starts complaining about that and so Rahimi fires a shot in the air uh to warn away uh the intervene and then right that and, and he did a lot of a lot of other stuff well too. That, yeah but that's not the basis of, of the court order of the sure he's, sure. he's accused of other <laughs> i think he's also accused crimes. of other yeah but even before like the whataburger shooting and the yes running it, people off the road all that stuff that he also was accused of like other aspects within just the domestic violence situation too um so yeah, yeah. You're, i mean yeah. yeah as applied to rahimi uh sure he doesn't yeah the facial challenge is kind of all he has right right and that that's why as a tactical decision they, they made it a facial challenges don't you don't need to look at my client. You just need to look at the statute and find the statutes unconstitutional. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it sure seemed like a lot of the justices on either side of the ideological spectrum were not. They were, yes, were so, not uh, convinced of this. Right. So we there are what's called facial challenges to a statute where you say this this there is no set of circumstances in which this statute is constitutional, and then there's as applied challenges where you say, well, the statute's constitutional, maybe in some applications, but not for my client. Um, and the justices seem to be in a consensus that uh, Rahimi was not going to win a facial challenge. All right, and so uh, I guess just to wrap wrap everything up here, uh, you know, where do you see things going with this case? I, I know you don't have to get in to too much specifics, I know, as we've emphasized a number of times, oral arguments can't tell you everything about where the court's going to come down. But how do you see it playing out? Where do you see things going from here? What are you looking for? Well, I, I think we'll, we have a good chance of getting a decision sooner than the last week of the court's term, because the court, in its sort of normal ecological cycle of when the briefs were due, uh, ordinarily would have had this case orally argued in early December, and they moved it up to have it orally argued in early November. So I think that's a sign they want to they want to get this done. So we we I'll make a tentative prediction that we'll get a, a decision on this before June of next year. I think the uh, result of the case will be that Rahimi will lose individually, uh, but I don't. And I'll 
tentatively predict that it's not going to be a bad decision uh, for the Second Amendment overall, and that the Supreme Court decision will uh, explain uh, in a more narrow and focused way um, why it's okay to disarm people like Rahimi without uh, signing on to the very broad theories uh, advanced by the Solicitor General that the Congress can define anything it wants as a dangerous category, and then there's and then everybody is just stuck with with that congressional decision. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll we'll have to look and see what the court uh, does yeah. when it hands down its opinion. I, you know, personally, I think that's uh, it's a pretty reasonable take. That's where I would come down yeah. on it as well. Uh, I'll be really interested to see what they do with those other two cases uh, that you mentioned, Range yes. and, and Daniels. You know, I think that'll say a lot about what they're going to do in Rahimi if we get news on that before Rahimi's opinion comes right. out, which I, I guess is not a guarantee either. So, uh, you know, the court, you, you can't really know until they do something what they're going to do. But um, we really appreciate you coming on and, and giving us this this recap, sharing some expertise on this. Uh, after oral, oral arguments, you know, it's the next big second, well, it's the next Second Amendment case. They've right. Taken, they, but this is only the, what, the seventh one they've ever done, right? Second Amendment case uh, in their entire history of the Supreme Court. Right. One, two, three, four. If I'm counting, correct. Is it Miller, Heller, McDonald, Saitano, which I count. Right. And, uh, and Presser, so and, sixth? Presser and Crookshank uh, before that. Well, yeah, that's true. I guess so. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they, people they don't they think of those ones, but that's true. They, they haven't done a lot. And uh, yeah. that's... Compared to the First Amendment, yeah. right? <laughs> that's right. And then, you know, Justice Thomas and Gorsuch and, and uh, Scalia... Uh, in the in the years after McDonald and before Bruin complained a lot that look you know, we we do First Amendment cases all the time we do Fourth Amendment cases all the time and it's it's kind of ridiculous that we haven't done any uh, we're, we're not helping the lower courts more on on Second Amendment issues so I, I think we're perhaps moving to a the Second Amendment continuing to become a normal part of the Constitution where the court does one or more second amendment cases every term. Well, well, that'll be, a, yeah. that'll be interesting yeah. if that comes true. Uh, uh, certainly good for gun reporters, I guess. Absolutely. <laughs> more to write about, but uh, all right. And, and uh, you know, for guests who are experts on the topics, we'll have to have you back on again, all right. uh, probably in the near future, but we appreciate you taking some time to talk with us. Um, and if people want to follow your writing uh, and what you do, can where can they do that? They go to my website, davecopel.org, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-L.org. And they can also follow me on Twitter at Dave Copel, uh, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-L. All right. Wonderful. And I write for the well, Volume Conspiracy have... website, too. That's yes, very Reason good, Magazine. very, very knowledgeable uh, site. I highly yeah. recommend uh, them and following your writing there as well. Uh, maybe we get you to write at the, the reload sometime in the future, too. That would be, that'd be great right. as well. But uh, all right, we're going to head over to our news update now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the weekly re, uh, reload news update. Sorry, <laughs> I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, uh, joined, of course, by reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? Good. Uh, you know, that was uh, almost the, the introduction to the main show. We have to have you do. A regular main <laughs> interview at some point. Uh, I would definitely want to definitely want to have that happen, and and because uh, I think it'd be interesting to mix things up that way every every so often. Um, I've got that intro like 
memorized now. In fact, sometimes I kind of worry that I'm just speeding through it too fast because I've like said it so many times. Um, so you know, you know, people can go ahead and give, give me feedback on whether my intros are, are too speedy now. Um, you can tell that I listened to every episode too, because clearly it was imp <laughs> imprinted in my brain when I started there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but otherwise I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, you know, uh, actually we have um, the, the charity shoot is coming up. The Homes for Our Troops uh, celebrity auction is now live. So people can go over and bid on the range day that I have available as part of that. Um, you know, you get a, a full range day with me. Uh, it says for two or more, but we've had a couple where people bring their family or whatever. That's that's totally fine. It's uh, so it'll take place in. We've done them all in southeastern Pennsylvania, uh, but they also could do them in uh, northern Virginia or somewhere uh, along that area. Um, so, you know, anyone interested in in doing that and all the money, by the way, goes to Homes for Our Troops, which is a charity that builds uh, houses for severely wounded veterans. Um, so it's a really great cause. And uh, they also are well documented. Uh, it's a registered charity They you can go and see the work that they do on their website for yourself. Um, and so uh, which is very important to me that it's a it's a, a very legitimate charity. It's it's that's has a track record that people can look at. Um, but yeah, all the money that you would uh, donate through the auction goes directly to them. And then you get uh, to have a range day with me. We'll, uh, we would just schedule a time that works for, for both of us. And, um, you know, the last, we've done it the last couple of years and it's been a great success. Wow. Well, we raise a couple thousand dollars usually uh, through my auction. And then uh, I think overall they raise quite a lot of money because some of those, I mean, some of these, uh, offerings are pretty incredible uh you know i'm talking like red carpet visits for premieres at movies this this is like a real celebrity auction i don't know that i am probably the least famous person uh in this thing like um you know george clooney auctions off one of his uh, fancy watches uh every every year and that brings in a lot of money which is great um you have you know paul rudd literally every famous person you could think of um jake gyllenhaal is involved. Most, most people at CNN, Jake Tapper is the one who organizes it. So, um, you know, lots of movie stars, sports people, there's packages for, I think there's like a 10 ticket package to, a, a Rams, um, 49ers game where you get like a box seat. It's pretty, pretty high level stuff that they're offering up over there. So I'm always kind of like, please bid on mine. So it's, the <laughs> yeah. money is not embarrassing <laughs> compared to what all this other stuff is going to bring in. Um, but you know, it, it's such a great cause uh, that it's a great thing to be a part of. And, and we have help from reload members. Uh, Merrill Walters is uh, the guy who, who lets us, uh, who, who hosts most of our range days at his farm in Pennsylvania. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a really good time and I encourage people to go and, and check it out. It's on eBay. You can, it'll be in the, the newsletter as well. And, and uh, you can find it on my my Twitter or my Threads account or wherever else uh, you might follow me. So uh, I definitely encourage people to to bid on that. It's for such a great cause, uh, and it is honestly a really good time. We've got a Texas Star and a bunch of steel targets to shoot at. Um, all the other times we've done this, so I bring out all my guns and and uh, and you know it's for all experience levels. If you've never shot before, that's totally fine. I'm a certified firearms instructor. If you've shot a lot and you want to bring out some interesting guns, that's great too. We had. Uh, one of the previous winners brought in an Arasaka. Um, That's pretty which cool. Was pretty cool. So, you know, uh, 
yeah, it's for a good cause and it's a good time. So check it out if you can. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, not much gets better than getting to shoot guns and get to say it's for a goes to a good cause. So that's awesome. Yeah. Hopefully people bid some money. Yeah, uh, I think it's already up over a thousand dollars and it just launched. So it's it's good. Hopefully we get a I'd love to see a record uh, record uh, event this year so we can build more of those houses. But uh, um, yeah, what are you doing? What are you up to this this weekend? You got anything fun coming up? I think you're going on a trip, right? I am. So the day after we record this, I'm getting on a plane and flying down to Atlanta. Uh, my girlfriend and I are going to visit a, a family friend of hers uh, that lives down there. Uh, we're going to go see a, a Georgia Bulldogs football game. Uh, oh. And then we're going to actually drive, you know, after that game to this guy. He has a farm in southern Georgia and he also has his own home range. And so I'm going to get to shoot some oh, guns nice. on his on a bunch of land. And it's, it should be a pretty fun time. So that's the dream. A home range. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Someday. I'd love to right. have that. Um <laughs> But uh, um, that, that's cool. So you're going to see like the Philadelphia Eagles, um, like the recruit squad down there. The <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Bulldogs. That's right. Uh, that should be fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, that sounds like a great time. Um, you know, Georgia's, Georgia's a beautiful state. Yeah. I've spent, spent some time down there. Atlanta's a fun city. Uh, you can get some really good food. So yeah. hopefully you'll, you'll be able to do that or at least get some Waffle House. I don't, you know, do they have that in Colorado? I don't, I don't they do. So. We do have oh, some Waffle do. Houses. Right. Yeah. We mm -hmm. don't have, I don't think we really have it around here in Virginia, Northern Virginia or Pennsylvania. I think they're like, you know, maybe within a hundred miles, but not, not many. So, uh, it's, it's quite a, quite an institution, American institution. <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, what do, what do we have in terms of news this week? Yeah, so, <clears throat> excuse me, we're recording this on Thursday. So last night, uh, as of this recording, was the GOP, the third GOP primary debate among the presidential yep. candidates. And sort of a continuation of a theme that we followed in the previous debates, gun policy was not really a part of any of the discussion among the candidates, which is, I think is interesting. Yeah, you know, it was brought up at least in the previous two for, you know, a single throwaway question, Yeah, more or less throwaway, or at least a a question that kind of dovetailed into like crime uh, policy. And, and so you really don't haven't seen these candidates talk much at all about gun policy, either on the debate stage or as a major part of their campaigns, um, which has been kind of surprising, honestly. Um, you know, you've seen, uh, as we talked about in the lead up to the, to the race, uh, Ron DeSantis in particular, the Florida governor had uh, gotten himself, some credentials on, on gun policy, you know, he signed permitless carry, he signed a, a banking bill that, um, forbade essentially banks discriminating against gun businesses. Um, uh, you know, what been part of that was based on a story we had written, um, about, about a gun dealer in Florida and, and the issues he ran into with Wells Fargo. But, uh, you know, he hasn't really talked about that much at all on the, the campaign trail. Uh, because it sure seemed like he was trying to create a uh, distinction between him and Donald Trump, because Donald Trump has some weaknesses on this issue uh, from the right, at least, um, given, you know, the bump stock ban and some of the comments he made after Parkland about taking people's guns before due process, things like that have, have been. Uh, and, all, and of course, he's also under felony indictment, so he can't buy guns legally right now. Um but none of this has come up at all. Uh, so, I don't, yeah, I guess the candidates just don't see this as uh, an issue where they can distinguish themselves from the front runner who's like way ahead of them. 
I don't know. The primary is in this weird place, right? Especially these debates where they feel like they're debates between the only peoples in the who are in the can campaign when really they're all way behind the front runner. Right. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. It's kind of strange. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm sure they don't maybe want to focus on the, the one guy who doesn't show up to the debates, but it's hard not to when he's winning by right. that much. Um, so I, it, all the whole thing has been a bit odd and the approach to gun policy has, has been completely different from what I expected it to be. It's just really a non-issue so far in the campaign. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I'm sort of of two minds about it either. One, the candidates don't think it's a salient primary issue, which is itself an interesting political story. Or two, yeah. it kind of relates to your Donald Trump point where they haven't really taken an opportunity to take shots at him on anything. So maybe they're just lumping because guns would be one of those things, as you mentioned, that they could yeah. try to separate themselves from him with. But they haven't really even taken any attacks on the front runner. So I don't know what. Right. To I mean, they, they mostly have stuck with, you know, electability which is a hard sell right now because Trump is, you know, winning a lot of these polls. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and, you know, DeSantis isn't even doing better than him. Haley is in a lot of ways in a lot of those polls, but not to the extent where she's like 15 points ahead of him against Biden or something. So, right. Uh, you know, that's a, been a fairly hard sell that they've at least been trying to sort of make. Um, but yeah, policy wise, not, not as much distinction. And maybe they just feel like um, he's so strong rhetorically in support for gun rights. You know, he goes to the NRA, he gives speeches. He, the way he talks about gun rights is very um, um, in, uh, invigorated or he's very, he, he sounds like somebody who's uh, wouldn't have vulnerabilities on from, from the right on guns, but you know, policy wise, the bump stock ban as we're going to mention here in a moment uh, has been found unconstitutional a number of times. It was the basis for a lot of president Biden's, uh, following rules, you know, he's doing basically the same playbook for pistol braces and and ghost guns, you know, so-called ghost guns and um, precursor parts, things like that. But, uh, you know, maybe they just have pulled that and found it wasn't something where Republican voters see it as a vulnerability for Trump. I, I don't know. It's been odd, though. Like, if you're going to run a race against the guy, you should probably run a race against him on <laughs> yeah. all the areas you can find a contrast. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a campaign person. So, uh, you know, but obvious, but at the same time, whatever they're doing doesn't seem to be working either. Um, and that could be just that they don't have a real shot at beating him, or maybe they're just not willing to cross certain lines. Like a lot of them, the fact that Trump can't legally buy guns, uh, that seems like something they're definitely not willing to go after because they're not willing to go after any of the stuff related to, the crimes he's been charged with. So, right. uh, you know, it just kind of sits there and, and they don't even distinguish between each other either. This is the other thing. Yeah. Like um, even in these debates where it's kind of like uh, a weird uh, Trump is not the 800 pound gorilla is barely mentioned. Um, they still aren't trying to contrast with each other uh, in those debates on guns. Nobody brings it up themselves. You know, the, the the moderators don't usually haven't really asked much about it. You've gotten one question at the two previous debates that were gun related uh, and they went to like Chris Christie. Right. Um, I think was the one person who who had like a, enough of a statement on guns in a debate that we actually wrote a story on it, uh, which was about mass shootings and how he didn't think gun control would would uh, make a difference there. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's candidates could bring up things if they really thought it was 
something they wanted to get out in front of and none of them have done that. So, yeah, I mean, that's where we're at uh, as far as the, the primary goes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll keep We'll keep an eye on it. Maybe as the field winnows down, something might change, but yeah. for now, there's it one more like... debate uh, yeah. they just announced, uh, which will actually feature my, my former boss over at the Washington Free Beacon. Eliana Johnson's going to be a, a moderator. Saw so that. I'm looking forward to, to that and see how that plays out. It'll be on, uh, I think, News Nation, the, the new cable news channel. So uh, it should be interesting. Megan Kelly is also going to be a moderator for that one. So we'll see how it pans out. Who's still there at the end. This one was a little bit more, a little less unwieldy, probably just because there were fewer candidates um, than the previous ones. And they weren't as loud as much over talk as they had done previously. But I also like TV, these, these spectacle-based debates are kind of, really wearing on me at this point you know i don't know why you fill these rooms with people who are there to cheer and jeer it yeah, totally yeah. changes everything about the debate makes it into like uh, i don't know you know like a like a gladi gladiatorial competition that's uh, i don't know maybe that's more entertaining but it's i think it's less fruitful for uh what you're trying to get out of these things but yeah i don't disagree <laughs> what do i know right. <laughs> anyway, what we also have another political story right that's right. So uh, Tuesday of this week was obviously election night for a lot of states around the country, um, including one of the big states that a lot of eyes were on, uh, including some we did a little bit of reporting on this in the lead up to the election. So uh, Virginia, all eyes were wondering yep. if the Republicans could potentially capture a trifecta. Uh, there were some hopes. And as it turned out, those hopes sort of fizzled out because it looks like the Democrats will not only retain control of the state Senate, but it actually looks like they took back control of the House as of this recording. Yes. So. That's correct. Not, not uh, the results Republicans were hoping for. No, not the not the outcome that Glenn Youngkin, the Republican governor, wanted, um, obviously, <laughs> and probably the outcome that's going to have the least effect on gun policy, I would imagine, uh, here in the state. Um, you know, the, especially because while Democrats took back control of the House and retained control of the Senate, the margins there are. I think one vote in each chamber at this point. Um, I don't know if all the races have been fully called uh, yet, but they, it sure seems like there's not going to be much wiggle room one way or the other. And then obviously the governor is still a Republican at this point. So um, I wouldn't expect much change in gun policy following this. So it's sort of a status quo situation for Virginia uh, outside of the potential court challenges to some of the laws that, that have been passed Um by the Democrats back in 2020. Um, so, you know, uh, they did redistrict the state just before this election. So a lot of incumbents had retired rather than face their new districts. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Virginia is kind of a, a lean blue purple state at this point and has been for a little while now. Uh, the best hope that Republicans have had in the past is that our elections uh, happen in the the off years, so you don't have that uh, presidential turnout changing things, uh, which has traditionally favored Republicans in off years. You know, lower turnout elections. All that may be changing with how sort of uh, the demographics of who votes for which party have changed a little bit recently. You know, the Republicans have lost a lot of suburbanites and, and better educated. Voters or you know people with more with higher degrees, um, which tend to be higher propensity, or they're more likely to turn out in low turnout elections. So that might be part of it. Um, you know, it's not like Virginia Republicans had a terrible day. I guess I mean they lost control of a chamber, 
So the outcome is, is a negative for them. But I think they had won most of the seats that were, uh, you know, up to Biden plus nine. Uh, so, you know, they they were closer to that Youngkin election, the 2021 election, than they were to the 2022 election, which, uh, you know, Biden carried the state by, I think, eight points, something like that. Um, so it, it's a it's a blue leaning purple state at this point. And coming to nearly a, um, you know, they were within one or two seats of controlling both chambers. Um, it's not like a total collapse, but it's obviously uh, good news for Democrats in Virginia uh, and really just even news for gun policy. I don't see much changing one way or the other, uh, but you never know. I mean, Youngkin isn't exactly a gun rights crusader. At least he's never put himself out there as one. So maybe there's some compromise package that could make it through. Uh, I don't. I don't know what it would be at this point because a lot of the lower hanging fruit stuff on the gun control side was already passed in 2020. So you really have like an assault weapons ban being the next logical policy step here. And I don't see that. I don't see Youngkin going for something like that. But, but yeah, that was the outcome. We had uh, Philip Van Cleve, the president of the VCDL, uh, Virginia Citizens Defense League on not, not long ago. And he I, I kind of got the feeling from the interview with him that uh, he was worried about this exact outcome, that people just weren't very energized to come out and vote on guns in Virginia. So it, it seems like that's kind of what happened. Uh, certainly wasn't a, I don't know that it was a leading issue in the race. You know, it was kind of almost comical as watching, uh, I think, football on Sunday. Uh, or even uh, maybe Monday night, and every single ad was a was a campaign ad uh, here in Northern Virginia, and they were all about abortion. Yep. Uh, every single Democratic ad was about abortion, and we saw as well in uh, th there was spending from the gun control groups here, uh, significant spending, uh, several million dollars, I believe, was was put into the state by every town, uh, at least over a million dollars, and um, even their ads did the thing where they led with abortion and then mentioned guns as, as a secondary issue in their own ads. So, uh, and you know, uh, I think they pretty well outspent the NRA. So, um, there, it does give you perhaps some insight into, uh, the money fight going forward for guns, which is might start skewing lopsided towards the, the gun controlled side, uh, more than it has in the past, given the struggles at the NRA is uh, undergoing. But speaking of the NRA, we, we actually have some more Supreme Court news, right? Uh, we, we just talked about the Second Amendment case that they had oral arguments in this week with, uh, we talked with David Coppola at the beginning of the show, but they've actually taken up, what, two new gun cases and one of them relates to the NRA, right? Yeah, that's right. So we, we have a couple stories uh, you, you folks can check out in the newsletter. But uh, as you mentioned, uh, the Supreme Court agreed to hear a case called NRA versus Vulo, which is uh, even though it involves the NRA is actually more of a First Amendment case than a Second Amendment case. Um, right. Deals with a financial services. I think it's the the Department of Financial Services in New York. The head of uh, Maria Vulo at the time uh, basically made some thinly veiled sort of threats, but not really threats to insurance and banking organizations warning them of the reputational risks that they would be doing by working with the NRA. And obviously the NRA challenged that and said it was an infringement on their First Amendment rights to try to basically use government coercion to 
try to get financial companies to divest from working with the NRA. And so the Supreme Court's going to hear that this upcoming term, which I think is interesting. Yeah, and the NRA has, uh, in in the lower court case, they had the ACLU on their side. Yeah. Uh, So sort of, you know, unusual bedfellow situation, uh, which maybe gives you some insight into uh, the, the details of the case, right? Like, like you described, she's, she sent out this letter to these financial companies and was basically like, you know, you guys should really think about whether you want to work with the NRA or not, uh, based on their political beliefs. Uh, she was specifically, um, pointing to the things that the NRA advocates for. And, uh, you know, so the ACLU was on the NRA side in this case, the lower court, uh, actually ruled against the NRA and essentially said that the letter was, nicely worded so it didn't constitute like the uh, first amendment violation you know wasn't the harsh enough to be that so uh, i think the supreme court accepting this case is this is a situation where you can read into that uh, yeah. perhaps that maybe the supreme court doesn't agree with the seventh i believe it was the seventh circuit the, the lower the lower court that ruled against the nra so uh the nra has probably a pretty good shot of winning that one uh, it's not a second amendment case though it's it's a it's a first amendment case so uh, yeah. Similarly, there's a they took another gun case that is not a Second Amendment case, right? That's right. So as we mentioned uh, earlier, when we we're talking about the GOP primary debates, the bump stock ban. So the after many years of gun uh, gun rights advocates trying to get the Supreme Court to hear this, uh, they finally agreed to take up a case on the bump stock ban, uh, which once again is not a Second Amendment case. Really, it's more of an administrative powers case. Um, but they will hear. Uh, oral arguments and eventually rule on the legality of the bump stock ban. So that's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, definitely big. Interestingly, even though it's not a second amendment case and it probably won't tell us much about what the court thinks of the second amendment, uh, like Rahimi will, uh, to some degree, at least, um, it will probably have a bigger practical impact on most gun owners, I would think, because, you know, most people are not subject to domestic violence restraining orders, um, or even, you know, the criminal prohibitions that, might be implicated with the Rahimi ruling, but uh, millions of people own some of the devices or firearms that have been impacted by these rules, these ATF rules that were put in place by President Trump and and now President Biden. uh, And that started with the bump stock ban. And so, um, you know, that's going to have implications for the pistol brace ban, for the the unfinished firearms, uh, you know, the ghost gun ban um, and, and rules along those lines, I think, will be implicated here. So that that could affect millions of gun owners, um, even though this case isn't directly about the Second Amendment. And you're probably better off looking at the Supreme Court's history on administrative powers and what they've been doing in that on that front recently, which, frankly, they've been very skeptical of administrative powers. You saw that in the APA ruling last year. Um, that will probably give you more insight into where the court's going to go on the bump stock ban case than the Second Amendment cases will. Yeah, that's right. But uh, speaking of those related rules that could be implicated, we have a new federal ruling on one of them, the pistol brace ban, where Mm -hmm. a judge issued a nationwide injunction, which is, I think, believe one of the first judges to actually issue or I I shouldn't call it an injunction. It's a stay. We we talked about this. It's a little off, confusing. Off mic, we were a little confused about yeah the term, specific terminology. But essentially, he he blocked the rule nationwide, right. Rather than just to the plaintiffs of gun groups, which is what we've seen to this point. Yeah, he stayed the entire rule, 
um, for the, I guess, the duration of the challenge to it in that case is another Fifth Circuit case. So the, the ruling is really just mostly quoting what the Fifth Circuit panel had said when they uh, when they ruled that the the ATF's um, ban was unlawful and uh, and what other judges have have written on this this topic. And so uh, the really interesting thing about it is that it, it seems to apply to everyone and across the country, um, which is something that previous judges, including that panel, have not been willing to do uh, to extend the the block on enforcement to everyone everywhere. And now they've done things like all members of you know the Firearms Policy Coalition or the Second Amendment Foundation or some of the other direct plaintiffs in some of these cases, but uh, not to everyone. So now you know this this is a much bigger uh, block of enforcement. I mean, it's a stay instead of a preliminary injunction or a uh, temporary restraining order. So I, legally, there's a distinction there. I have to talk to some of my lawyer friends to ex- understand exactly what it means, but. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a significant ruling uh, that you know we haven't seen before. We haven't seen a nationwide uh, a ruling with nationwide implications like this, and and that's probably because in the recent years the Supreme Court has become a little bit unhappy with nationwide injunctions from you know a single district court uh, somewhere in the country. Uh, so they you've seen less of that recently, but. Uh, we'll have to see how long this lasts, what the DOJ does about it. They haven't responded to requests for comment, so uh, we don't know exactly what their plans are at this point. But, um, yeah, significant for lots of people who still own those devices, because most of them, if you recall, uh, were not registered by the deadline, according to the ATF. So uh, big, big news there, for sure. Absolutely. And then the final story we're going to talk about today is one that you actually broke. Uh, you had an exclusive on the uptick in Israeli citizens applying for gun permits. And we actually got confirmation on a hard number on what that looks like. If you want to tell us what you found out in your reporting. Yeah. So I spoke with uh, <clears throat> a member of the, the Israeli parliament who oversees the gun licensing there. And he said that they've had 150,000 applications. That was the estimate he gave uh, over the past month, you know, in the, in the month since the October 7th attacks uh, by Hamas. Um, and that is an unprecedented amount in Israel. He said that was the equivalent of three years uh, of applications. Usually they get between 40 and 50,000 a year, and they had 150,000 in less than a month. So it gives you really good insight into the reaction from Israeli civilians to the sort of horrific slaughter that we saw, uh, that the whole world saw. Uh, on October 7th. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I think that's pretty significant. It's, you know, it dovetails with what we saw in Ukraine uh, during the initial invasion by the Russians. Um, and it also dovetails with what we've seen here in the United States from Jewish Americans who are also understandably concerned about the terror attacks uh, in, in Israel on October 7th. And they have uh, also gone out and bought a lot of guns and gotten new training and um, and which is reporting that we've done you know, previous to this as well. So, uh, you know, a pretty, pretty unprecedented situation in Israel as far as uh, civilian gun ownership goes there. Um, and, and one that I think could have implications, I think, as well for the future of gun regulation in that country um, and maybe in other countries as well. I don't know. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting because uh, obviously Israel is different than America. I know a lot of American gun owners like to look at these things through American cultural eyes, but they don't have a Second Amendment in Israel. It's not the same type of gun culture. So to see this enormous uptick in people looking to exercise some form of gun rights, whether even though it's not a Second Amendment based right, uh, is certainly notable in a country like that, um, especially when they have the precedent of what, you know, the heroism that they saw from sort of paramilitary, basically civilian uh, gun, basically gun owners in these kibbutzes during that horrible attack where where people in the community took up arms and, and defended whole communities during the, that terrible terrorist attack. So certainly looks like a potential cultural turning point, but we'll have to, we'll obviously have to, to wait and see. Yeah. Simcha Rothman, who was the, the Israeli politician that, that uh, I interviewed for this piece, he pointed to the, those exact situations as um, uh, inspiration for people uh, in Israel. So some of these successful defenses of the, the, communities in the South, um, you know, where, where they have these, they're like community security agencies, uh, essentially they're, they're, they're not, there's, he called them semi-military. I, I don't know that we have an equivalent to that here in the United States, right? but, um, you know, maybe national guard to so, something like that. Um, but it's a little different, you know, it's just not a similar political situation you know, we don't have Hamas on our border like they do. So, um, you know, it's, it's not quite the, the same thing, maybe a sheriff's department you might compare it to. Um, but regardless, uh, you know, th that example of people defending their community successfully during these attacks, um, while, uh, you know, 1,400 people were, were murdered, uh, has driven a lot of other people to go and get armed. Um, and yeah, the, the cultural difference is, is very significant. Um, with gun ownership in Israel compared to the United States. Um, like you said, it's not a right there. Um, the, you also basically, you can only own handguns was the implication he was, he's given these permits only apply to handguns. They are kind of a combination of a permit to own and permit to carry. Uh, so you don't have to get a separate carry permit if you get a gun permit. Um, but you have to live in a special zone that the government considers particularly unsafe to get one of these, or you have to have been um, served a specific kind of role in the military previously, a combatant. Um, you know, they, they have opened up some of these things, some of the, some of the eligibility it, since the attack. Um, you know, now, I guess, veterans, combat veterans are the largest group who are eligible for these. And, and so, um, you know, and keep in mind, this is a country of about nine and a half million people. So 150,000 permits in a month, that's a lot for, for a country that size, especially considering on the other end of it, you know, yeah, they're, they're not, they don't have the same tradition of civilian gun ownership as we do in the United States, but they also have a culture where uh, military service is mandatory for most people. So uh, they aren't necessarily unfamiliar with firearms either. They're, they're familiar with them in a different context, which is, you know, mandatory military service. And obviously they have um, a lot of the able-bodied men are being called up to the reserves to, uh, and they're being armed with military uh, firearms with rifles and that nature. So they take a very different approach than we do to uh, guns, but it's not something where, you know, everyone there is unarmed all the time and, and uh, have no understanding of how to use firearms. It's just a very different cultural approach than we have. Um, and not, you know, we also have a member's piece that dives into some of those differences a little bit more. And there's obviously some 
uh, a lot of similarities as well. But uh, but yeah, big piece. Uh, I think it has a lot of uh, says a lot about what's going on in Israel at this moment. Uh, so people should should have a, head over and read that. But that's all we've got for you this week. Uh, we will be back again uh, real soon. But in the meantime, if you want to support the the show, you can give us a rating on your podcast app, whatever you're listening to us on, or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can uh, share this with anyone you think might be interested. That's always super helpful to grow the show. Um, and of course, you can also head over to reload.com and sign up for our free weekly newsletter if you want to get a taste of more of the kind of reporting we do. Uh, and if you like it, perhaps uh, you can buy a membership and support us financially, as well as get access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and stories that you won't find anywhere else. Uh, we, we are doing something completely different than any other publication, I believe. And I think it's, uh, it's worthwhile. It's great for you to uh, show your support that way, but also get access to valuable information. And uh, of course, you'll get the show a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment. If you want, just reply to your Sunday members newsletter. If you'd like to be on the show, and we'll, we'll do a member segment with you. Um, but that's all we've got. And we will see you guys again real soon.